This episode of Outlaws and Gunslingers is brought to you by Hydronique Hydration Electrolyte Powder Drink Packets. Started, That's a lot to say. It is a lot to say. It started in the midst of the pandemic. The founder of Hydronique Hydration, who was a frontline healthcare worker, started developing constant headaches. Uh-oh. A landmark research study published early during the pandemic showed that up to 81% of frontline healthcare workers develop new headaches, mainly because of their PPE hmm. or personal protective equipment like face masks, face shields. Right. Uh, which prevented them from eating and drinking properly while on the job. Right, because, I mean, yeah. you, you got it on all the time. You're not going to take it off. Just do that. He said he would leave work tired, dehydrated, and burnt out. Ain't that crazy. The founder looked for a healthy drink with all the necessary vitamins and minerals, but with no sugar, something that was keto-friendly and healthy. But most powdered drinks on the market have a ton of sugar and caffeine. Yes, they do. That's why he created Hydronique Hydration, sugar-free, keto-friendly, plant-based, Antioxidant-rich electrolyte powder packets for daily use. Daily. For containing all essential vitamins and minerals the body needs with a refreshing taste. The product contains elderberry, which has an immune-boosting properties for support during cold and flu season. You know, I never tasted elderberry, and I uh, actually got a box of this stuff the other day. Tried it out for the first time. Not bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, did, I, did, uh, I did feel the difference in um, just the way I feel. Can't say that. Not dehydrated, but elderberry uh, myself. It's not bad. It's a, I guess, not for everybody, but it's not bad. Hydronique hydration electrolyte powder packets can also fit in your bag or suitcase when traveling. Everybody remembers traveling, don't they? Right. We're all back at it now. But mm, uh, it. so if you're having trouble with eating and drinking healthy during your busy day in 2022, but want a sugar-free, keto-friendly vitamin drink, give Hydronique hydration a try. Hydronique hydration. There are 30 electrolyte powder packets in a pouch, perfect for a one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Ten times. There are 30 electrolyte powder packets in a pouch. Perfect for a one-month supply. Jeez, that's a tongue twister there. You can visit the website, www.hydroniquehydration.com. That's H-Y-D-R-O-N-I-Q-U-E, hydration.com. It's the word hydration and unique mashed together, hydronique. Right. That's www.hydroniquehydration.com. hydration.com. Or search for Hydronique Hydration on Amazon, where they are often a discount coupon at checkout for the next week. You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals. From the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers with your host, Bang and Dang. And we are bringing you another one of the most famous incidences in, uh, I guess it is still American history, even though the the uh, bad part didn't happen in America, but started off. involved Americans and, uh, I'm sure you guys have all seen the overhead footage of the 900-plus bodies laying all on top of each other after drinking a mix of cyanide-induced uh, flavor aid. Idiots. And, uh, and uh, of course, I'm talking about Jonestown, the most famous and probably deadliest mass suicide <laughs> to ever happen. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, people, uh, how do people... Um, Get this brainwashed and what the hell happened leading up to it. This is uh, what you what we do here. Obviously, you guys are going to hear it all from the background all the way up to the end and the aftermath, as we usually do. It's a very, 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 very long story, which is probably going to be two parts. So 
Make sure you listen to two, part two, people. Yeah, People's Temple was the uh, in, the formal name of it. Uh, formed in Indianapolis, Indiana, in 1955. Had roots in teaching. Its roots in teaching shared more with Christian revival moment movements rather than Marxism. But mm. uh, they claimed to be Marxists, and uh, it purported to practice what it called apostolic socialism. Mm. Well, there's a word that you don't want to hear already. Right, that explains everything about to happen. And doing so, the Temple preached that those who remained drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to an enlightenment. Enlightenment, which was socialism, hmm. apparently. Jim Jones founded the uh, religion in 1955. It said that uh, he, this guy has a fascination with Stalin, right. Karl Marx, hmm. Mao Zedong, Mahatma Gandhi, and Adolf Hitler Joe from Biden. a young age. Um, <laughs> how does he have all those? And then he puts Gandhi in the middle, like also right. Gandhi. Right. That is believed that to be the reasoning with the obsession with wanting to create a total control society, which... Uh, I don't know. Did Gandhi want to do that? I'm not sure that he wanted to control people. But so, yeah, he uh, visits Guyana in the early 60s, which was then a British colony, while on his way to establishing a short lived temple mission in Brazil. After he received considerable criticism in Indiana for his integrationist views, the temple moved to Redwood Valley, California in 1965. In the early 70s, the temple opened other branches in L.A. and San Francisco and would eventually move its headquarters to San Francisco. Anytime you're getting criticized for doing something, move to California. And later, San Francisco. Right, because you're going to be praised there. Mm-hmm. Jeez. With the move to San Francisco came increasing political... With the move to San Francisco came increasingly political involvement by the temple. Sorry, guys, my voice. I was freaking singing it up last night. <laughs> I can karaoke, guys. Okay, do that. <clears throat> and go home to a dry house. <laughs> <clears throat> With the move to San Francisco came increasingly political involvement by the temple and the high levels of approval they received from the local government. After the group's participation proved instrumental in the election of the mayor, uh, he, uh, George Moscone in 1975. Moscone appointed Jones at the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. Oh, jeez. Jones enjoyed public support and contact with some of the highest level politicians in the United States of America. Jones met with vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale and first lady Rosalind Carter. Oh, good for him. Right. Guests at a large 1976 testimonial dinner for Jones included California Governor Jerry Brown, Lieutenant Governor Mervin, that's a weird way to smell, smell, the spell Mervin. Mervin with a Y. <laughs> right. Mervin Dimely and California Assemblyman Willie Brown. Amongst Willie Brown. Others. What's an Assemblyman? I don't know. He's working on assembly line? Yes. Assembles, assemblies? Assemblies, assembles men. <laughs> In the fall of 1973, after critical newspaper articles by Lesser Kinsolving and the defection of eight Temple members, Jones and Temple attorney Tim Stone prepared an immediate action contingency plan for responding to a police or media crackdown. Mm-hmm. The plan listed various options, including fleeing to Canada or to a Caribbean missionary post, such as Barbados or Trinidad. Yeah, you don't want to go there. Uh, for its Caribbean missionary post, the Temple quickly chose Guyana, conducting research on its economy and extradition treaties with the U.S. Mm. Uh, in October of 73, the directors of the Temple passed a resolution to establish an agricultural mission there. Yeah. All right. So, sure, that's what it was. All right. Now they get the freely do their stuff mm-hmm. without any type of uh american influence i guess no laws or anything like that right down in guiana maybe i mean i'm sure the Guian- guianese i don't know if that's the right <laughs> word but the guianese uh army's not too uh or the regimes i think it's probably communism back in right it was a british colony so no it was a monarchy right 
I don't know if it was when they went there, but it was when he visited in 1960. Right. The temple chose Ghana in part because of the group's own socialist politics. Well, there you go. Right. Which are moving further to the left during the selection process. Former temple member Tim Carter stated that the reasons for choosing Ghana were the temple's view of a perceived dominance of racism and multinational corporations in the United States government. According to Carter, the temple concluded that Guyana, an English-speaking socialist country with a predominantly indigenous po- population uh-huh. and with a government including prominent black leaders, would afford black temple members a peaceful place to live until oh. they died. Until, right, until they didn't. Um, I wonder if that was his plan all along, was to do the mass kill suicide. Him. I don't know. Why would you kill well, yourself? He definitely though? had that plan in place. but yeah. uh, Obviously, he believed it if he drank the poison himself. There's Well, he didn't drink the poison. Um, he didn't? No, you'll see. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember. <laughs> um, there's video of the night. Well, we'll get to the story. You guys right. already know a senator came down there and all that shit. But the night before he came down, or the <clears throat> night he was there, they threw a party. There's a good movie to watch about that. But there's, I was actually surprised that the... Um, the black membership in that group. I right. thought it was like mostly white. There was a lot of black people. Black See, people, fucking, there was everybody. In the movie that I watched, it was about maybe four months ago, which is crazy that we're doing this one. Uh, it was more of a horror story, but they stuck with the more true part of it, you know, and added a little horror shit at the end, like a ghost or some shit. I forget uh, what it was. Oh, but uh, yeah, there was mostly white people. There wasn't any really blacks in the, the senator part, and they showed all that good stuff. So, yeah. Later, Guyanese. Hey, I was right. Hey. Guyanese Prime Minister Forbes Burnham said that Jones may have wanted to use his cooperatives as the basis for the establishment of socialism, and maybe his idea of setting up a commune meshed with that. Right. Uh, who names your kid Forbes? Yeah, right. Hmm. Doesn't Forbes mean like? I don't even know. It's like the Forbes magazine, right. magazine where everybody had to cover rich people stuff. Right. So maybe it's one of those things. Forbes top one hundred. Um, Jones also thought that Guyana was Paul, small, poor, and independent enough for him to easily obtain influence and official protection. Right. Like Jones take it over right. basically, or do whatever the hell he wants right. without getting in trouble. Jones was skillful in presenting the Guyanese government the benefits of allowing the People's Temple Agricultural Project to settle within its borders. Hmm. One of the main tactics was to speak of the advantages of their American presence near Guyana's disputed border with Venezuela. Hmm. This idea seemed promising to the Burnham government, who feared attack from Venezuela. I can see that. Venezuela, yeah. Venezuela, even back then, I think, was still backed by uh, USSR, right? I'm pretty sure, yeah. 1974, after traveling to an area of northwestern Guyana with Guyanese officials, Jones and the Temple negotiated a lease of 3,800 acres of land in the jungle located 150 miles west of the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. Definitely British. The site was isolated and had soil of low fertility, even the Guyanese standards. So you really can't do nothing there. And they wanted to grow their own shit. It was an agricultural mission, supposedly. Their nearest body of water was seven miles. Oh, whoa. Geez. On muddy roads. So that you weren't driving down the some bitch unless you had a monster four wheel drive. Jonestown location stood not far from Guyana's disputed border with Venezuela. A Guyanese officials hoped the presence of American citizens would deter a military incursion. Right. Which, it's I mean that is Right? Insurgent. Incursion. Incursion. Um which yeah. is true. They're not going to, Venezuela is not going to go and take out American people and then, especially a thousand of them if there's like eight. Yeah. Be afraid the fucking America is going to have to get involved now. Right. You take out a thousand American people and they're going to do something. Mm-hmm. As members began the, as 500 members began the construction of Jonestown, the temple encouraged more to relocate to the settlement. Jones saw Jonestown as both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary for media scrutiny. It was a utopia. Supposedly. In uh, 1976, Guyana finally approved the lease they had negotiated. 
uh, all the way back since 1974 with the Jeez. temple for the over 30,000 3, acres in northwest Guyana on which Jonestown was located. Right. In 1974, Guyanese officials granted the temple permission to import certain items duty-free. Ah. Later payoffs helped safeguard shipments of firearms and drugs of course it did. through uh, Guyanese customs. Right. Um, right. Well, what the hell is uh, the temple has to do with firearms and drugs? They need the firearms, obviously. They ain't letting nobody leave. They ain't letting nobody leave. And plus, they have their the drugs. Own. I guess they got to drug them. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. Right. They're, um, yeah, they had like a small little freaking military, not military, but a, like a little right. regiment thing All that right. they had there. So and Plus, Jones had to make money somehow, so he had figured drug trafficking in the game, right? Guyana or something, mm-hmm. I guess. Jones reached an agreement to guarantee that Guyana would permit Temple members mass migration. To do so, he stated that they were skilled and progressive, showed off an envelope he claimed contained $500,000, and stated that he would invest most of the group's assets in Guyana. He goes, we're going to be here, so money. Right, I mean, we're obviously going to have to buy here. Right. The relatively large number of immigrants to Guyana overwhelmed the government's small but stringent immigration infrastructure in a country where immigrants had outweighed locos. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Guyanese immigration procedures were compromised to inhibit the departure of temple defectors and curtail the uh, visas of temple opponents. Yeah. So basically, once you go there, right. you're not getting out. Right. Even through. And if you don't support the temple or something, you're not getting in. Jonestown was held up as a benevolent communist community, with Jones stating, I believe we're the purest communists there are. Jones's wife, Marceline, described Jonestown as dedicated to to live for socialism, total economic and racial and social equality. Hmm, sounds familiar. Right. Uh, we are here, we are here living communally. Right. Jones Everybody has wa- their fucking yeah. place. Or freaking place. Uh, Jones wanted to construct a model community and claim that Burnham could, couldn't have enough about us. The wonderful things we do, the project, the model of socialism. I'm sure the guy did like it. It's going to rave. Jones did not permit members to leave Jonestown without his express prior permission. Can't even go like a walk in the jungle or anything. No. Outside the premises. No. Right. The temple established offices in Georgetown and conducted numerous meetings with Burnham and other Guyanese officials. 1976, temple member Michael Prokes requested that Burnham receive Jones as a foreign dignitary along with other high-ranking U.S. officials. Mm. Oh, wow. Right. Jones traveled to Guyana with Dimily to meet with Burnham and Foreign Affairs Minister Fred Willis. In that meeting, Dimily agreed to pass on a message to the State Department that Socialist Guyana wanted to keep an open door to cooperation with the United States. Dimily, Dimali, Dimali, I think it is. Dimali followed up with the meeting with a letter to Burnham stating that Jones was one of the finest human beings that you will ever meet and that Dimali was tremendously impressed by his visit to Jonestown. Mm. Nice. Uh, temple members. I mean, you got to talk up, talk up the guy's place, oh, right? Obviously, you're his guy. Plus, you got to. You got to sell Burnham on, you know, the whole. Yeah, it's got to have us here. Right. Which, obviously, it worked. Temple members took plans or pains to stress their loyalty to Burnham's Public National Congress Party. One temple member, uh, Paula Adams, was involved in a romantic relationship with Guyana's ambassador to the U.S., Lawrence Bonnie Mann. Lawrence with a U. Right. Uh, Jones bragged about other female temple members he referred to as public relations women, given all for the cause in Jonestown, okay. whoring them out. It's already freaking uh, corruption Jeez. going on. Viola Burnham, the wife of the prime minister, was also a strong advocate of the temple. Of course she was. Uh, later, Burnham stated that Guyana allowed the temple to operate in the manner it did on the references of Moscone, Mondale, and Rosalind Carter. Burnham uh, also said that when Deputy Minister 
Ptolemy Reed traveled to Washington, D.C. in September of 77 to sign the Panama Canal Treaties. Mondale asked him, how's Jim? Which indicated to Reed that Mondale had a personal interest in Jones' well-being. You know, I mean, he probably did. He rubbed elbows with them all in uh, California. So Jimmy Carter is known to be one of the presidents, one of the few presidents that had no corruption or anything. But he also sucked. He also sucked, but his wife is full of corruption, obviously, I guess. Didn't know that. Summer, 1977. Jones and several hundred Temple members moved to Jonestown to escape building pressure from San Francisco media investigations. Jones left the same night that an editor at New West, so New West magazine, I don't know if that's still around, read him an article to be published by Marshall Kilduff detailing allegations of abuse by former Temple members. Mm. After the mass migration, Jonestown's became overcrowded. I bet. Jonestown's population was slightly under 900 at its peak in 1978. Many members of the temple believed that Guyana would be, as Jones promised, a paradise or a utopia. Uh, a utopia. After Jones arrived, however, Jonestown life significantly changed. Of course, once you're there. Right. Entertaining movies from Georgetown that the settlers had watched were mostly canceled in favor of Soviet propaganda shorts and documentaries on American social programs. Oh, here we go. Problems the brainwashing continues yeah. or starts, I guess. Bureaucratic requirements. The Soviet? Yeah. They, oh. they were fucking freaking Russia pals, man. Which you'll see, um, bureaucratic requirements after Jones's arrival sapped labor resources for other needs. Buildings fell in disrepair and weeds encroached on fields. School study and nighttime lectures for adults turned to Jones' discussions about revolution and enemies with lessons focusing on Soviet alliances, Jones's crises, and the purported mercenaries sent by Tim Stone who had mm-hmm. defected from the temple and turned against the group. Right. Uh, for the first several months, temple members would worked six days a week from approximately 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. with an hour for lunch. In mid-78, after Jones's health deteriorated and his wife began managing more of Jonestown operations, the work week was reduced to eight hours a day for five days a week. Oh, oh good look for, at her. Yeah. her. You got the weekends off. I doubt it. <laughs> right not the weekends. I'll give you a day here and there. How about that? After the days I think of- when you're in a jungle in the middle of nowhere, <clears throat> the weekends really matter anyways. Right. I mean, what are you doing? They probably didn't even take those two days off. After the day's work ended, Temple members would attend several hours of activities in the pavilion, including classes and socialism. Jeez. Jones compared this schedule to North Korean system of eight hours of daily work followed by eight hours of study. Oh, my. This also comported with the Temple's practice of gradually subjecting its followers to sophisticated mind control Mm -hmm. and behavior modifications. Hmm. We heard that recently in the past couple years. Techniques borrowed from Kim Il-sung's Korea and Mayo Zedong's China. Jones would often read news and commentary, including items from Radio Moscow and Radio Havana, and was known to side with the Soviets over the Chinese during the uh, Sino-Soviet split. Yeah, you might as well. This guy is all Russia, dude. All USSR at the the time. Uh, Discussion around current events often took the form of Jones interrogating individual followers about the implications of subtext of a given news item or delivering lengthy and often confused monologues on how to read certain events. Hmm. In addition to Soviet documentaries, political thrillers such as The Parallax View, The Day of the Jackal, State of Siege, and Z were repeatedly screened and minutely analyzed by Jones. Okay. Oh, could you imagine that? Pauses it every five seconds. You see what he said there? Right. Rewind it. Let's right. Listen closely. Recordings of commune meetings show how livid and frustrated Jones would get when anyone did not find the films interest- interesting or did not understand the message Jones was placing upon them. I mean, this dude's... If you're... you're he's preaching... Uh, you gotta be like, people gotta love you and stuff. You can't force it on them and get pissed off because they're not understanding it, right? 
Jeez, so oh, terrible this guy. This guy turned, quickly turned into a dictator. Right. No films or recorded TV were shown on the commune social circuit system, no matter how innocuous or seemingly politically neutral could be viewed without a temple staffer present to interpret the oh, material for the viewers. Now, this is what it really right. means. You see how they're trying to brainwash you mm. here? This invariably met damning criticisms of perceived capitalist propaganda and Western material and glowing praise for highlighting of Marxist and Leninist messages and material from co- communist nations. So, like, you see, they, they try to say it's bad, but look at, look at really what's going on. This is, this is how it's really supposed to be. They're just lying to you. Right. And don't these people know, too, that there's never been a successful socialist country? Well, not at this point. It's only the 70s. And there still isn't. The USSR was still going. Communist is different. Of course, it's going to be sex- successful the communist. USSR was socialism. It was but United it was more. Socialist, um, right. whatever. But it was more communist than yeah. leaning towards that way. People are just dumb, man. Jones recorded reading of the news were part of the constant broadcast over Jonestown's tower speakers, such that all members could hear throughout the day and night. Oh, that's ridiculous. What's that? that sounds like Korea right there, isn't it? Right. Jeez. Uh, Jones's news readings usually portrayed the U.S. as a capitalist and imperialist villain with casting socialist leaders, while casting socialist leaders such as Kim Il-sung, Robert Mugabe, Mugabe and Joseph Stalin in a pro- positive light. Right. Jonestown's primary means of communication with the outside world was the shortwave radio. Hmm. All voice communications with San Francisco and Georgetown were transmitted using this radio from mundane supply orders to confidential temple business. Okay. The FCC cited the temple for technical violations and for using amateur frequencies for commercial purposes. Ooh. Because shortwave radio was Jonestown's only effective means of non-postal communication, the temple felt the FCC's threats to revoke its operator's licenses threatened Jonestown's existence. Well, of course it did. Well, right. You still put, you can't use personal uh, radio waves for Work, commercial purposes, right. apparently. It has to be all legit so right. everybody knows what's going on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it stood on poor soil, Jonestown's was not self-sufficient and had to import large quantities of commodities such as wheat. Wheat. Jeez. Temple members, that's terrible. Why would you pick such a terrible land? Temple members lived in small communal houses, some with walls woven from truly palm, and ate meals that reportedly consist of nothing more some days than rice, beans, and greens, and occasionally mm. some meat, some sauce, and eggs. Jeez. Well, they couldn't bring down chickens or anything? Come on. <laughs> Despite having access to an estimated $26 million by late 1978. Holy shit. Jones also lived in a tiny communal house. Though fewer people lived there than in, on other communal houses. His house reportedly held a small refrigerator containing, at times, eggs, meat, fruit, salads, and soft drinks. Medical problems such as severe diarrhea and high fever struck half the community in February 1978. Of course yeah, it did. I mean, they probably didn't have no clean water, I'm sure. No. I'm luck- they're lucky they didn't get an outbreak of like, cholera or something. Yeah, sickening. Although Jonestown contained no dedicated prison and no form of capital punishment, various forms of punishment were used against members considered to have serious disciplinary problems. Methods include an imprisonment in a six by four by three foot plywood box. Oh wow! And forcing children to spend a night at the bottom of a well, oh. sometimes upside down. Upside down. Jeez, this torture hole, along with beatings, became the subject of rumor among local Guyanese. So even the locals are like, you know, these right. guys will hang their kids <laughs> by their uh, ankles. You don't want to go there. Uh, uh, for some members who attempted to escape, drugs such as Thorazine, sodium pentothal, chlorohydrate, Demerol, and Valium were administered in an extended care unit. Mm-hmm. They weren't letting them guys go All there to keep them sedated. And, right. You know. Wow. Armed guards patrolled the area day and night to enforce Jonestown's rules. 
Children. How are these people not like? Right. But the, at the same time, they're spinning it as we need these guys with guns in case anybody tries to come in. Exactly. You know, yeah. yeah. We need them here. Children were generally surrendered to uh, communal, communal care and at times were only allowed to see their biological parents briefly at night. Jeez. Jones was called father or dad by both adults and children. The community had a nursery at which 33 infants were born. For a year, it appears the commune was run primarily through Social Security checks received by members. Huh. Up to $65,000 monthly uh, welfare payments from U.S. government agencies to Jonestown residents were signed over to the temple. Jeez. Wow. And this dude has $27 million in the bank. Right. Uh, 1978, officials from the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown interviewed Social Security recipient, recipient, recipients. Uh, recipients right. on multiple occasions to make sure they were not being held against their will. Mm-hmm. None of the 75 people interviewed by the embassy stated that they were being held captive or forced to sign over their welfare checks or even wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, African-Americans made up approximately 70% of Jonestown population. Wow. Which I, yeah. <clears throat> 45% of Jonestown residents were black women. We had uh, 460 black females, 231 black males, 691 total. Uh, white Females, 138, 108 males, 246 total. Mixed, we had 27 female, 12 male, 39 total. Other, I don't know what that means. It's 13 females, 10 males, 23 total, 999 total people. They couldn't just add one more, like give us an even thousand or something. Uh, (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I was surprised when I watched that video. I was like, like, and those were all Americans too, so it was weird. It's weird that it was mostly women too. Well, I mean, who's going to be more uh, right. easy to brainwash? No offense, women out there, but right. you're going to brainwash them, and the husband's going to get brainwashed by the wife, and then down you go. Down you go. Jones made frequent addresses to Temple members regarding Jonestown's safety, including statements that the CIA and other intelligence agencies were conspiring with capitalist pigs right. to destroy the settlement and harm its inhabitants. And that's why, you see, we have to have these armed guards. Right. After they don't, they don't want to help you. They just want to shut us down and mm-hmm. lock us up. They don't understand what we're doing here. Right after work, when purported emergencies arose, the temple sometimes conducted what Jones referred to as white nights. During such events, Jones would sometimes give the Jonestown's members four options: attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown's and fight the purported, purported attackers, or flee in the jungle. Uh, First of all, how in the hell are they going to get the Soviet Union? <laughs> right. <laughs> hey man, let's just sail. Right. And I'm definitely not committing revolutionary suicide. And I might take my chances in the jungle, though. Uh, Jones was known at, to regularly study Adolf Hitler and Father Divine to learn to manipulate members of the cult. Who's Father Divine? Oh, either or. Um, I guess I wouldn't want to be running through a jungle, though. What the hell are you going to do in there? Uh, I mean, I guess you're you're gonna die one of the ways, right? And you're basically living in the jungle over there, so yeah. you can handle yourself. Uh, Divine told Jones personally to find an enemy and to make sure they know who the enemy is, as it will unify these in the group and make them subservient to him. Oh yeah, gotta have that one one uh, enemy everybody hates. On at least two occasions during White Nights, after a revolutionary suicide vote was reached, a simulated mass suicide was rehearsed. Temple defector Deborah Layton described the event in an affidavit. Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did what we were told. Hmm. Right, so even when they were doing the white noise, or the white noise, whatever the hell they called it, they they didn't know if they were even getting poisoned then. Right. 
They just did it. They just did it, man. They could have died any time. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through. Oh. So I don't even think they thought it was real the last time. They might not have, right? He was like, this was a loyalty test. Now I know. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. The temple had received monthly half-pound shipments of cyanide since 1976 after Jones obtained a jeweler's license to buy the chemical, reportedly to uh, clean gold, obviously. Hmm. 1978, May, a temple doctor wrote a memo to Jones asking permission to test cyanide on Jonestown's pigs as their metabolism was close to that of a human. Okay. Yeah, but they need the pigs, right? Well, can you still eat a pig after? Uh, I doubt it, but uh, test a couple, see how long it took to take effect. Right. Uh, in September 1977, former Temple members Tim and Grace Stone battled in a Georgetown court to produce an order for the Temple to show cause why a final order should not be issued returning their five-year-old son, John. Mm. So these two aren't even a part of it no more, and they still got their son in there. Right. Like, what the hell? How does how does that even happen? I wonder how they let him go. <clears throat> Did they let him go? Well, they were in America before these guys left. Oh, okay. so, All right. A few days later, a second order was issued for John to be taken into protective custody by authorities. For the fear of being held in contempt of orders caused Jones to set up a false sniper attack upon himself and begin his first series of white nights called the Six-Day Siege. Uh-oh. During the siege, Jones spoke to Temple members about attacks from outsiders and had had them surround Jonestown with guns and machetes. Right. I mean, they're trying to take our boy, one of our own members... I mean, even though it's not, you know, it's their kid, but... Right. Jeez, dude. The rallies took an almost surreal tone as black activists Angela Davis and Huey Newton... Huey? Huey? Huey Newton communicated via radio telephone to the John Jonestown crowd, urging them to hold strong against the conspiracy. Jones made radio broadcast saying, we will die unless we are granted freedom from harassment and asylum. Mm. Deputy Minister Reed finally assured Marceline Jones that Guyana Defense Force would not invade Jonestown. After the six-day siege, Jones no longer believed the Guyanese could be trusted. He directed Temple members to write to over a dozen foreign governments inquiring about immigration policies relevant to another exodus by the Temple. He also wrote to the State Department inquiring about North Korea and Albania, then endearing the Sino-Albanian split. Hang, so this dude's about ready to pack up and leave again. Yeah, he wants to go. He should have went over there in the fucking first place. Right. Right. I don't know why he would go to, I guess. Um, in Georgetown, the People's Temple conducted frequent meetings with the embassies of Soviet Union, North Korea, Yugoslavia, and Cuba. Hmm. Negotiations with the Soviet embassy included extensive discussions of possible resettlement there. Okay. The temple produced memoranda discussing potential places within the USSR in which they might settle. How about nowhere? Right. Uh, Sharon Amos, Michael Prokes, Matthew Blunt, Timothy Reagan, and other Temple members Temple members took active roles in the Guyana-Korea Friendship Society, which sponsored two seminars on the revolutionary concepts of Kim Il-sung. In April 78, a high-ranking correspondent of Soviet news agency TASS and his wife visited Jim Jones. Although Jones, <laughs> his executive partners, and congregation voiced their thoughts about moving their operation to the Soviet Union, Jones had a change of heart. Oh, didn't want to go there anymore. Right. He has stated that he preferred to stay with the Guyanese borders because of the sovereignty it afforded them. Right, because when you go to USSR and those right. countries, they ain't giving you the freedom like they right. are here. He's like, we're kind of safe here, more safe here than we're going to be anywhere right. else. 2nd of October, 1978, Theodor Timofeyov, Theodor Timofeyov, Council for the Soviet Union in Georgetown visited J Jonestown for two days, and he gave a speech. 
Jones stated before the speech, for many years, we have let our sympathies be quiet. Oh, we have let our sympathies be quite publicly known that the United States government was not our mother, but that the Soviet Union was our spiritual motherland. The motherland. The motherland. Timofeyev. Timofeyev. Opened the speech stating that the Soviet Union would like to send our deepest and the most sincere greetings to the people of this first socialist and communist community of the United States of America in Guyana and in the world. Both speeches were met by cheers and applause from the crowd in Jonestown. Following the visit, Temple members met almost weekly with Timofeyev to discuss a potential Soviet exodus. Like a... A Russian territory or something? Right. I'm assuming. Go there and uh, set up your little <clears throat> village here. Meanwhile, late 1977, early 1978, Tim and Grace Stone, Stone participated in meetings with other relatives of Jonestown's residents at the home of Jeannie Mills, another Temple defector. Together, they called themselves the Concerned Relatives. Tim Stone engaged in letter-writing campaigns to the United States Secretary of State and the Guyanese government and traveled to Washington, D.C. to t- attempt to begin an investigation. By January 1978, Stone wrote a white paper to Congress detailing his grievances and requesting that the congressman write to Prime Minister Burnham. Ninety-one congressmen wrote such letters, including Congressman Leo Ryan. Jeez. Okay, so now, now we're getting some attention here from the from the government. Ninety-one wrote letters? Right. Yeah, they were on their ass. Yeah. On February 17th, 1978, Jones submitted to an interview with San Francisco and Examiner uh, reporter Tim Reiterman. Reiterman's subsequ- subsequent story about the stolen custody battle prompted the immediate threat of a lawsuit by the temple. The repercussions were devastating for the temple's reputation and made most former's, former supporters more suspicious of the temple's claims that it was the victim of a rightist vendetta. Okay. Still, others remain loyal. On the day after Reiterman's article was published, Harvey Milk... <laughs> A member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors who was supported by the temple wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter defending Jones as a man of the highest character. Of course he did. And stating that temple defectors were trying to damage Reverend, Reverend Jones's reputation with apparent bold-faced lies. April 11, 1978, the concerned relatives distributed a packet of documents, including letters and affidavits, that they titled an accusation of human rights violations by Reverend James Warren Jones to the People's Temple. Members of the press and members of the Congress, they all got that. In June 1978, Layton provided the group with a further affidavit detailing alleged crimes by the temple and substandard living conditions in Jonestown. Tim Stone represented three members of the concerned relatives in lawsuits filed in May and June of 1978 against Jones and other temple members, seeking an excess of $56 million in damage. The temple, represented by Charles R. Gary, Followed a suit against Stone on July 10th, 1978, seeking $150 million in damages. <laughs> For what? You know, all right. Oh, they're, I'm they're double de- that. Def, def, what? Defamation of character and running us in our name through the mud, pretty much? It could be, yeah. All right. During the summer of 1978, Jones sought the legal services of Mark Lane and Donald Freed, both Kennedy assassination conspiracy theorists, to help make the case of a grand conspiracy by U.S. intelligence agencies against the temple. Uh-oh. Jones told Lane he wanted to pull an Elridge Cleaver uh-huh. to return to the U.S. after repairing his reputation. What okay. is, who's Elridge Cleaver? Right, what do you do? Has to be somebody that uh, was disgraced and came back. Like a Julian Assange or a Stoughton? Oh, leader of the Black, Black Panther ah, Party. I see. Leroy. Oh, Leroy. What was his name? Cleavage. Leroy Elridge Cleaver. Cleaver, yeah. 
Um, yeah. On September 78, Lane spoke to the residents of Jonestown, providing support for Jones's theories and comparing him to famed civil rights movement leader John, or John <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Lane then held press conferences stating that none of the charges against the temple are accurate or true and that there was a massive conspiracy against the temple by intelligent organizations. Naming the CIA, the FBI, and the, even the United States Post Office. <laughs> wow. The Postmaster General. Yeah, Postmaster General. And then on this. Right. Though Lane represented himself as a disinterested <laughs> yeah. Postmaster General. The, uh, yeah. Though Lane <laughs> represented himself as a disinterested party, Jones was actually paying him $6,000 a month. <laughs> no shit. Uh, to generate these theories. Uh, well, Jones's health significantly declined in Jonestown. I mean, I'm sure everybody's dead. Yeah. In 1978, Jones was informed of a possible lung infection, upon which he announced to his followers, followers that he, in fact, had lung cancer, a ploy to foster sympathy and strengthen support within the community. Right. Jones was said to abuse an injectable Valium, Quaaludes, stimulants, and barbiturates. Oh, this dude was high. Yeah, always. Wow. Audio, t- I mean, has probably made his ramblings even right. more... Weird and he yeah. knew he was dying, so he's like, you know, I'm just he's not even dying. Screw these guys. He's up. had a lung infection. He told the right. people that he had well, lung his cancer. His health's declining. Oh, well, I guess. Yeah. Audio tapes of 1978 meetings within Jonestown attest to Jones' decline in physical condition, with the commune leader complaining of high blood pressure, which he had since the early 50s, small strokes, and weight loss of 30 to 40 pounds in the last two weeks of Jonestown, temporary blindness, convulsions, and in late October to early November of 1978. While he was ill in his cabin, grotesque swelling of his, the extremities. Ugh. Grotesque. Right. That means it was like right. his hands were like three times the size or some shit. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Jones often mentioned chronic insomnia. He would often say he went to, he went four to three, four to three. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes four, four, sometimes even three. Right. <laughs> he often says he went three to four days without any rest at all. During meetings and public addresses, which once sharp speaking voice often sounded slurred. Words ran together or were tripped over. That's because it was on drugs. Sound like Nancy Pelosi. Right. Jones would occasionally not finish sentences like Joe Biden, <laughs> even when reading typed reports over the commune's PA system. Jeez. Oh, Reiterman was surprised by the severe deterioration of Jones's health when he saw him in Jonestown on the 17th of November in 1978. After covering Jones for 18 months for the examiner, Reiterman thought it was shocking to see his glazed eyes and festering paranoia face to face. To realize that nearly a thousand lives, ours included, were in his hands. Twenty mm-hmm. fifth mm. Amendment now. <laughs> right, <laughs> get him out of there. Right, uh, Leo Ryan. Here we go. Who represented California's eleventh congressional congressional district announced that he would visit Jonestown. Ryan was friends with the father of Bob Houston, a Temple member in California whose mutilated body oh, no. was found near the train tracks on October fifth, nineteen seventy six three days after a taped telephone conversation with Houston's ex-wife in which leaving the tempo was discussed. Uh-oh. Oh, jeez. Over the following months, Ryan's interest was further aroused by the allegations put forth by Stolen, Leighton, and the concerned relatives. On November 14th, Ryan flew to Jonestown along with a delegation that included Jackie Spare, Ryan's then-legal advisor, Neville Annaborn, representing Guyana's Ministry of Information, Richard Dwyer, the Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy to Guyana, mm-hmm. Any, any relation to Bud Dwyer, the one guy that shot himself on TV? Very possible. Um, Tim Reiterman, which uh, is the guy Francisco. covering um, right. Jones from the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, Greg Robinson, another Examiner photographer. Don Harris, NBC reporter. Bob Brown, NBC camera operator. Steve Sung, NBC audio technician. Bob Flick, NBC producer. Yep, yeah, have those guys. Charles Krause, Washington Post reporter. Dang. Uh, Ron Javers, Javers. 
San Francisco Chronicle reporter and concerned relatives representatives, uh-huh. including Tim and Grace Stowen. Oh, wow. so they even Man. went down there. They had, they had to, right? Uh, Stephen Anthony Katsaris, Beverly Oliver, Oliver, Jim Cobb, Sherman Harris, and Carolyn Houston Boyd. Wow. So now we got uh, old Leo Ryan and his delegation down there. And this we is. Got, we got reporters on both sides of the United States. Yep. We got NBC there. Well, this is going to be a major uh, a, a expose on these guys you coming up. You know, they were ready for ratings and all that shit. Well, what they what they didn't know, they were about to get the ratings for sure. Right. Um, this is when uh, Jim Jones is about to become very, very paranoid. Very, very and, paranoid. And um, these next 24 to 27 hours are mm. what everybody remembers from this stuff. So we're going to leave it right there on the sort of not a cliffhanger, but a cliffhanger. Leo Ryan's officially in. Jonestown, and we'll get to uh, his conversations and his dealings there. The um, defectors finally admitting that they want to leave, and then the uh, shootings, and then the obviously mass suicide that took place, and the aftermath that would be all part two. But that was part one. All the background you ever needed to know about uh, Jonestown and what the hell was going on there. And I think we painted a pretty clear picture of what kind of people Jim Jones and his people are uh, manipulating studying um any communist socialist person that he can everything and uh mm. lots of brainwashing mind control going right. on in here and people are like how how do people get like that i mean when you're when you're um working or 16 hours a day pretty much pretty much and all over the speakers all you hear is the same propaganda shit spewed day propaganda. on day out i mean people are gonna start nourished to, and, right i mean yeah. it's drugged apparently right. and everything so Drugged. it's just a bad <sighs> situation man a lot of shit's going on here, but Jim Ryan or Leah Ryan has arrived. This is part one of Jonestown. Part two will be next week. If you guys are uh, interested in hey, Ryan, should never went. Mm, well, <laughs> he had good intentions. All right. Um, if you guys are interested in the American Civil War, we do another podcast over on the Bang and Dang or the Bang Dang Network called the Battles of the American Civil War. We're about four months into the first month or first year of the Civil War right now. You go check that out. And a couple uh, major battles, a couple major battles going on already. We already did Bull Run and we're rounding out 1861, headed into pretty active 1862 with double the battles of 1861 coming up. So we got a lot of stuff happening, <coughs> and uh, that's over on the Bang Dang Network. And you can go check out all the other podcasts over there. And we'll be back next week for Jonestown Part Two. We are the Month of Michiganders with Bang Dang. <laughs>